Hi, everybody. I'm Sabri Beneshore from Marketplace. And I'm Tim Fernholtz from Quartz. And this is Actuality. What you're asking can't be done. This is a futile effort. If it could be done, it shouldn't be done. But it can't be done. It can't be done, obviously. This season on Actuality, they said it couldn't be done. Each episode, we're going to look at the people, companies, and museums trying to accomplish (laughs) things that have never been done. This week, let's start with something that, uh, well, probably no one ever thought they had to say couldn't be done. Piero Manzoni is one of the great conceptual artists of the 20th century, Italian. He died very young at 33, and he did a very special piece of work, which he called Merda d'Artista, which means artist shit. And what he did is he took a shit and he sold it in a can 30 grams of his own shit for the same price as 30 grams of gold this is true we fact checked it and we learned contemporary artist Piero Manzoni sold his own defecation in 1961 for the same price as gold although I would note actually no one's ever opened the cans Because that would ruin the value, so there could be anything in there. Oh my god. One day they're like a hundred years from now, they're gonna open it up and it's just gonna be like crumbled pieces of paper that just say lols. Uh but the crazier thing is Matt Carey Williams says he's the deputy chairman for the Phillips Art Auction House. He's the guy who just told this story. Is that now these cans of poop are more expensive than gold. Way more. Well, today, gold costs about $1,700 an ounce, I think. I don't know what the, the number is. To buy 30 grams of Manzoni shit will cost you about half a million dollars. And the point of this exercise, Matt explains, is to basically create a commentary on how people buy art and how they value it. He did that because he wanted to say that my art is as important as that material that underpins the global economy. So he made a very interesting dynamic between art as a commodity and as an object and as a process, we can go on there, (laughs) with the market and how people buy art and why they buy it. This week's episode is about the art market. And while it may not seem like billionaires purchasing poop doesn't matter to you, this market is actually shaping the museums uh, that the rest of us spend our Sunday afternoons in. And while we typically think of museums as places where all the old stuff ends up, maybe mausoleums for culture, now they're making a choice to get involved in the big-dollar contemporary art market. There is a ton of new modern contemporary art museums opening around the world, and even the stuffy Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York opened a contemporary art museum, the Breuer. So this week on Actuality, we'll visit some of the biggest auction houses in New York City, Sotheby's, Christie's, and Phillips, to see what it looks like when you sell more than a billion dollars worth of contemporary art in just a week. And we're going to find out why museums are trying to get in on the action. So we packed up our mics and headed to the Phillips Auction House. Sherman, Dubuffet, Kippenberger, just among the names on the wall at the Phillips Gallery here on Park Avenue in Manhattan. And Tim is dressed for the part in a very sharp suit. I look like some sort of popper. So we walked into this gallery space. It's white walls, polished concrete floors. There's large pieces hanging on the walls and some statues in the middle of everything. And they're all from some really famous artists like Jeff Koons, Roy Lichtenstein, Sterling Ruby. 
Cindy Sherman, Mark Bradford. I know all of these names because I am a (laughs) cultured person. And upstairs above the gallery, the auctions take place. That's where the pieces all around us and hundreds of others are sold. There's a slideshow going on. It's being projected on the wall. The actual art is not there. But there's all lots of people uh, sitting in chairs, in rows, and there's a ton of people on phones. And they're all dressed in black. I don't know if that's a thing, but they're all dressed in black. And there's this bidding war going on. There's some random person on the phone, represented by a person wearing all black. And then there's this, this very petite woman in the audience, and they're bidding on this painting. And at one point, the woman looks at her friend, and the friend looks at her, and she just gives this exasperated flip of her hand where she's just like, oh, just buy the damn thing. And then... Sold for $55,000. And that was just one of the pieces being auctioned. Others in the same auction went for well, $60,000, 125000 233000 And this is how over a billion dollars of art is sold in a week. Realizing we couldn't afford to bid on this auction, we went back downstairs... Speak for yourself, Tim. <laughs> ...to look at the pieces on display. We are desperately trying not to touch or breathe on anything that we see here. We brought a ringer in, Kelly Crow, who comes to these markets every year. My name is Kelly Crow, and I'm an art reporter for The Wall Street Journal. So everything around us in this room, all these works of art, were featured in Phillips' evening auction, kind of the highlight of their spring sales week. Uh, Most of the pieces sold, and they're labeled with their prices, uh, which are quite high. The Sterling Ruby, that sold for... So this particular one was estimated at five, and I think it did around, it sold for around um, 580 something rather. Five. 500,000. Sorry, you know in auction parlance, you just cut it off, man. <laughs> 500,000. Why even say the thousand? The base unit yeah, is 100,000. Yeah, please. We're not dealing with chump They're not here. selling a lot of ones. And these works, by the way, are demanding these prices in what Kelly refers to as an off year and a tough season. Uh, And the works that we're looking at and the ones that are selling the best are classified as contemporary. They were produced in the last couple of decades. In the past, you wouldn't have seen that kind of work in museums, but now things are changing. Um, There's been actually a, a pretty huge mushrooming of contemporary art museums around the world in the last decade. You know, museums were not invented to hold the newest stuff in the world. The Rise of the Art Museum, I think, has its roots in the Renaissance and just before, um, when um, very wealthy sort of merchant princes and popes and kings in Europe decided to become pack rats. People started collecting things and classifying them, and then they started collecting fine art. And then they started to die, (laughs) and their heirs didn't know what to do with all of this stuff. It's just like, you know, your grandma's sort of uh, collection of license, you know, plates that she's had. She's buying them at flea markets all the time. At some point, she turns to you and says, do you want them? And if you say, no, I'm good, she's got to figure out somewhere else to put them. So they started housing that art in museums, and museums sprouted up across Europe, across the U.S. So, you know, you can characterize the museum's focus on the contemporary art as either a distraction or just a new focus. But either way, I feel like that's a 
major challenge for them to sift through all this new stuff coming in. And so I asked Kelly about it. I mean, okay, look, there's a painting made out of buttons and some sort of paste. There's a painting made out of like string uh, pulled off of a canvas with like, it looks like a, like old subway signs. Um, this one around here, there's a golden baby crib. Is that hard for museums to keep track of this explosion of new stuff? Yeah, there's totally a fascinating phenomenon happening where, again, going back a century ago, museums thought that they were mausoleums, right? They were the port of last resort for art, that they were meant to sort of be this huge, beautiful jewel box with all these treasures inside, and they were essentially safeguarding them, right, from war, from plague, from being melted down to make a cannon. I mean, museums were always trying to hang on to things that they thought mattered to us as a people and reflected who we were. Now what you're finding is that museums like the Whitney, like SFMOMA, are adopting more of a working laboratory for living artists model. Hmm. So they are wanting to catch up by saying we are going to expand, we're going to make more room for new art, but we also want to be a place that's not just a mausoleum. We want living artists to come in here and make work, um, become more of a playground for artists. Uh, The Whitney lets uh, artists sort of you know, chop into the floors, hang works from the ceilings. Uh, you could live there if you wanted to as an artist. I mean, the Met decades ago would have said, are you kidding me? Why are they more game to do that now? Is it a function of the art world changing or just different incentives for museums? Art has gotten a lot more interactive. So again, a half century ago, most of the art that you saw, you could sort of look on a wall and see hanging up or you could walk around it on a pedestal. Art is not like that anymore. Tino Segal, this really great performance artist, makes performances that collectors have the right to buy. So they actually aren't getting a piece of paper. They're not getting anything they can actually put in a drawer or store. They are buying the right to own this performance for which there is nothing to show for it. He won't even sign anything. I mean, that's where we're at. It's a really lively, fun time to be thinking about art, um, but it makes it tricky to collect. And I think the same thing, you know, is for museums as well. They're all trying to get a little bit more interactive because that's what we want. Our two-year-olds know how to swipe a cell phone and they, you know, who knows what kind of art they're going to like, but it's going to be a lot more interactive than just paintings. And it's that question of what today's two-year-olds are going to want in the future that presents a tricky situation for today's museums. It's all well and good to pick the classics. Everybody knows they're okay, but predicting the future is trickier. Art history is a brutal, brutal mistress. And over time, a lot of shaking out happens. Maybe the benefit of putting new art in a museum instead of a gallery is that galleries are there to market stuff. Museums are there to educate people and everyone can see it. And museums can answer questions like the one that I asked, please stop judging me, don't judge me, please don't judge me. I I have one question and I want to ask everyone's forgiveness for being super freaking ignorant, okay? And I I feel like a curator probably overhears this question all the time from some dumb dad or dumb dude (laughs) like me who's like, well, like this is a painting with it's two black stripes and two white stripes. Like yep. I could do that. Mm-hmm. My dog could probably no, do you that. Could. This is the my kid could do that question. Right? <laughs> yeah, my kid could do that question. Like, how did this get to be four hundred and sixty-one thousand dollars? Um, sure. You know what? Oh, this. Oh, I'm sorry. Five point seven million. Okay. Million, million, million. So, what I would say to that question, which I get asked all the time by my stepsons and other people is (laughs) what the heck, you know, I could do that. 
The question is, you didn't, <laughs> and you didn't. <laughs> the answer is, you did not, and you did not do it in 1971. Um, again, uh, if you watch films or you uh, look in your closet, you're not wearing what your grandfather was wearing for good reason, right? Uh, but maybe that tie that your grandfather rocked, you know, at certain times, had crazy wild paisleys, was the coolest tie ever. Right? Yeah. But you didn't get the chance to be the first one to wear that tie mm -hmm. and be the cool guy at the party to rock that crazy paisley tie because you weren't there. So yeah. it's really important, I think, when you're judging art to, to remember the context that it is plunked in, in a timeline, right? Yeah. It is history, and you need to try, if you can, to put your goggles on and think, okay, what was really happening in the 70s that was compelling Bryce Martin to paint these stripes and what was happening in the broader world, right, that informed that. And then what you find, if you are willing and open-minded enough to peel back those layers, you will find fascinating answers. So huge thanks to just insanely brilliant Kelly Crow. Um, and you know, after she said that, I felt a little bit dumb. I mean, not Aww. dumb, but like a little foolish, like, well, God, it seems like when you give a painting, you know, or a work of art, the context that, that you're missing, you all of a sudden realize, oh, well, okay, 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 that makes perfect sense. Um, on the other hand, can you really expect that of, you know, every single person walking through the doors of a museum to understand that this one stroke of a paintbrush on a canvas is actually a brilliant stroke of, of, declara of artistic declaration? Yes. Well... <laughs> Well, fine. Sabri, you're a sculptor. You're actually an artist. <laughs> now I've been I've been looking at the pictures you put of your pottery on Facebook and sort of imbuing all this deep meaning and <laughs> historical context into them. And now I guess I'm just going to assume they're the products of nihilism. And <laughs> well, you might not be that far off. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. So, Tim, what have we learned? So, when the Metropolitan Museum of Art here in New York was founded in 1870, the people who did it were not probably expecting it to be a haven for the new and the now. They were looking back. But now they are looking at the now. And that could be a good thing, right, Sabri? Yeah, it could be. I mean, you know, the, the Met, for example, has said that when it's displaying contemporary art, it's going to do it with a historical context so you can sort of follow the dots from history to the present. And, you know, that's a lot more informative to everyday people than galleries, which are, are more about marketing. So the only real fear is that the museums are going to be teaching the public about art that actually won't be that well regarded in 100 years <laughs> yeah. from now. So maybe we're learning about all the crap that's actually not going to make it into the halls of history. And then, you know, maybe that's not too different from today. One of my colleagues at Quartz did a survey of museums and found actually that the Met is only displaying about 49% of its collection. So maybe it's just adding more uh, to its dustbin of history. <laughs> That is all the time we have because we said so. We would love to know what you think of this podcast and what things we should take on next. Email us at mpqz at marketplace.org. And big shout out to all of our Cold Fusion correspondents. We're listening. Yeah, thanks, guys. <laughs> and we're also on Twitter at ActualityPod. 
Thanks to Claire Tennisketter, our wonderful producer, Jake Gorski, and Brad Fisher, engineers. Jake made our theme music, by the way. Do we still have theme music? Yeah, it comes in pretty much right now for the credits. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> okay. It's still really good theme music. Deirdre Dupke is uh, New York Bureau Chief at Marketplace, and Sitara Nieves is a senior producer at Marketplace. You've been listening to Actuality, the Marketplace Quartz podcast. We'll be back soon with more stories from around the world. See you then.